Welcome to the Besties with Breasties podcast. Sarah Hall here. I am a certified health and wellness coach, athletic trainer, mom, and breast cancer survivor. I help women overcome their own mind drama to make mind shifts that open up the possibility for their most empowered and energetic life. And I am Beth Wilmus, author, speaker, and founder of a human investment organization, otherwise known as a nonprofit called Faith Through Fire. Our mission is to reduce the fear and anxiety that breast cancer patients feel and replace it with hope and a path toward thriving. This podcast is about our experiences with breast cancer and life after as young survivors and moms. Good morning. Good morning. How are you? Oh, good. You look cute. Your makeup looks on Thanks. spot, on point. We have a meeting, so I did my makeup. And then I did yoga. So you after know. you did your makeup, well, that's, yeah. that might be why you have the healthy glow. Oh, is it my glisten? Yeah, you look good. Today, we're talking to Dr. Molly James. Dr. James is board certified in general surgery and critical care medicine. She trained at Mercy Medical Center in Des Moines and the University of Minnesota. After practicing for many years, she realized that she needed additional tools to help her patients and incorporating functional medicine into her practice was her answer. So today we're going to talk to Dr. James about her experience in New York during the pandemic. And then we're going to talk to her about her concerns with the government and how health systems kind of responded to the crisis. Right. And finally, we're going to finish with the advice she has for those seeking care. But before we talk to Molly, let's hear from our first sponsor. Thrivent is a proud sponsor of Faith Through Fire. Thrivent believes money is a tool and not a goal. The Gateway Financial Group with Thrivent is local to the St. Louis area and can work with you to create a financial strategy that reflects your priorities and helps you protect the things that matter to you, like family and giving back. Please call 314-783-4214 to schedule a free consultation with one of Thrivent's Gateway Financial Advisors. All right. Welcome, Dr. James. Thanks so much for being with us. Yeah, thanks for having me. Of course, of course. I am so interested to hear about, now you lived in New York and practiced in New York during the pandemic, correct? Kind of correct. So I actually live in St. Louis and I flew out there for a week to two weeks every month for about 18 months. Oh, and what prompted you to do that? So I was sick with COVID right away when the whole world was locked down for the first time. So just like everybody else, I was on my couch watching the news 24-7. And I saw Governor Andrew Cuomo begging for help from ICU you know, nurses, doctors, respiratory therapists. And I always have been interested in doing mission trips. You know, very rarely do they need a critical care doc. <laughs> so because usually not that kind of setting, right? They don't have that kind of equipment. So I thought this is one time I can help out. And I was working in a situation where my schedule allowed it. And so I volunteered in March of 2020. And then just due to a number of things, I ended up going a couple more times to a different hospital. And then I took a job out there. So I was back and forth for for quite some time. Oh, Oh, interesting. interesting. Okay. So what was it like in New York during the pandemic then? Yeah. So the very beginning, so there's kind of three or four different pandemics, if you will, in my opinion. So early 2020, the first wave, like everybody was caught off guard, right? We were in the trenches, no matter what we did for our patients, they were dying left and right. I've never seen anything close to that in my ICU career. Hmm. And I've been doing this as an attendee now for about, you know, at that time, eight to 10 years. So that was Again, everything we tried, people were just dying of all ages. You know, of course, it disproportionately hit older people. But I had a very 
biased viewpoint because as you look at the data, you know, it's very heavily 85 and over, but the patients who got to the ICU were actually 40, 50, 60. So I was seeing this happen in younger patients. So if you go back to my social media very early on, I was telling people like wear a mask and socially distance mm-hmm. just because I thought if this swept across the entire country, it would decimate the United States. Mm-hmm. Wow. And that's yeah. interesting to hear. Like, you know, I, I think all of us know a healthcare worker that was mm-hmm. involved in the pandemic. It's interesting to hear it from a medical professional's you know, mouth as to what they were seeing. Because I feel like we're just now starting to have those conversations because there's been so much heightened fear, anxiety, politicism politicism around this topic that I think we're only now at a point where we can kind of have this logical discussion and talk to people about what they were seeing and how their opinions were shaped and formed and changed. So that's Mm -hmm. really interesting. So you're saying that first wave, it was chaos. Everybody was scared. Nobody knew exactly how to contain it. And that was your that was your experience with the first wave. But you kind of allude that there were additional waves. So how did that all play Mm -hmm. out? Yeah. So spring 2020 was the wave in New York. And again, we were trying everything. You know, nurses were working double, triple time. We had a third of the medical team out at any one point in time with COVID. So then you move to like at the end of that year, they or at the end of the summer, they started doing autopsies and we started getting back. This is an inflammatory condition and this is a blood clotting problem. So we started to understand the phases of the illness and the cytokine storm. So late 2020, it hit here in St. Louis in the Midwest. And so by that point, we started doing steroids and we started doing blood thinners, not nearly as much as we should have, but we started doing that. And then, you know, at the end of that, I started hearing about ivermectin. You know, I saw the Pierre Corey testimony and I could tell by the way he talked that he had been where I had been and seen what I had seen, right? Mm -hmm. All of this death and was just absolutely heartbroken over it and had a better solution. So I really paid attention to what he was talking about. The next wave was right after that. So we went into like the end of 2020 was bad in St. Louis. Early as things calmed down here, it it roared in New York again. So early 2021 was Mm -hmm. the next wave of alpha. Started using some of these things in low doses. And the the ICU was very imperfect, right? And Mm -hmm. that's what's really frustrating for me. People are like, you should have done this and you should have done that. It's not that simple in the ICU. So and you know, so by the end of the, that wave, I was understanding the dose was important with ivermectin. We needed to crank the steroids. And so as we hit 20, the end of 2021, the Delta wave here in the Midwest, I knew exactly what needed to be done. Mm-hmm. Interesting. So I, I'm curious about the ivermectin because there's a lot of controversy about that. And I will go on record in saying that I took ivermectin. I found a nurse that was willing to prescribe it and I took it. I had had COVID mm-hmm. twice. And I don't know if it did anything for me. I didn't have severe symptoms the mm-hmm. second time. The first time I had difficulty breathing. The second time I didn't have that. But I I don't know, you know. But she eventually reached out to all her patients and said that she was getting basically her license was in jeopardy. And so she was no longer going to prescribe it. So I'm, I'm curious as to whether or not you thought that was a therapeutic agent that worked or if you thought that it was something people were clinging to that didn't have a lot of data behind it. So absolutely it worked. It certainly wasn't, it's not a one trick pony, right? The reason it became a prominence is because it had been studied as an antiviral for over a decade in Australia. So when doctors were looking to repurpose drugs, there was already a decade of experience with this. And so they used it early on. I absolutely saw, there's a percentage of people that they tell you within two hours, I felt like a new person. Within eight hours, I could walk again. Within 12 hours, my stats were up. So there's a very small percentage of the population that respond incredibly well to it. 
So there, unequivocally, it works. But there's a lot of my patients that it didn't have that. And I was one of them, you know, did it help me or did it not? You know, it's so safe. It doesn't matter. I mean, that was my viewpoint. I, I, I thought mm-hmm. I did my research. Yeah. I saw that it wasn't going to harm me. You yeah. know, and being a survivor of breast cancer, I was worried about my lungs. I was worried about permanent damage. Mm-hmm. And so I did it and I didn't feel any effects one way or the other. So well, I think the interesting thing to note here is that you are starting to notice that like even you said in the ICU, it's imperfect and that like you tried to treat people how I feel like medicine kind of puts you down that this is what we do for this disease or this state. And yeah. and it's, it, not it's not always it's not personalized at all. So I think that's mm-hmm. interesting that you have now pivoted to where you are now. Yeah, yeah, it's not it's very protocol driven. It is very much medical education is dumbed down right now to do what the checkboxes on the computer tell you to do. Mm-hmm. And there's no thought as to what if the patient doesn't respond to that? Or what if there's more than one thing going on? Mm-hmm. Or you know, to think about what's actually happening physiologically with the patient. So again, I wouldn't lose my career over ivermectin. I don't think it's that great. It's a good drug, but it, it was an armamentarium, right? It's knowing which drugs to use at what time. So there are probably a total of, you know, 20 different supplements and, and prescriptions I use that helped people get better along with hyperbaric oxygen was really critical in what I was doing. But when you look at the bigger scope of it and we're starting to use this in cancer patients, it actually has some anti-neoplastic properties. And so it makes you wonder, why did a federal agency come down on one of the WHO's safest, 50 safest drugs and essential drugs? It's a generic, like you've never seen the FDA come down and say like, don't take this. That was bizarre. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Cr- creating a little bit of systemic skepticism. Well, and that's, that's <laughs> a little bit. That's, yeah. <laughs> that's the whole point of the series that we're in right now. It's about medical skepticism, which I think, yeah. you know, so many, how do I say this? So many people will say, well, you're just not educated, right? And this is why you're skeptical or this is, you know, but, but we see these yeah. things play out mm-hmm. and they don't make sense. Mm-hmm. And then it, it breeds that medical skepticism. And I think it really, yeah. really harms the patient doctor relationship. What do you think about mm-hmm. that? I do think it harms it. And I would I would go to this question by the people who say you're not educated. My question is, who whose education do you want? Do you want the education of somebody who treated a thousand patients and 800 of them died? Or do you want the education from somebody who treated 6,000 patients and 55, 5,600 lived and did well? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know, I want I want the people who are successfully doing and treating things and having good patient outcomes. That's who I want to learn from. Mm-hmm. And so that to me is like just because the federal government says it doesn't mean it's true because none of those people treated a single patient. Mm-hmm. And it's pretty easy to sit at your desk and say ivermectin doesn't work when you don't have to look somebody in the eye across the table from you that's going to die if you don't figure out how to treat them. Mm. So did you feel like both in New York and here at home in St. Louis that that you were able to to do what you needed to do to help patients? Or was that protocol, that kind of mandate of this is the protocol we follow? Is that were you already in private practice by that time or was that something you had to worry about? So if you remember, the shots came out in early 2021 and the narrative totally changed. So to me, that was like the second part of the pandemic, Mm -hmm. because in 2020, we were all in this together and everybody just there was no moral sin if you got COVID, mm-hmm. right? You just were unlucky. Mm-hmm. But in 2021, when the shots came out, now if you got sick, you did something wrong. Mm-hmm. You were somewhere you weren't supposed to be. You had a political belief you weren't supposed to have. 
And or, so it became a moral or, issue. Or you don't care about other people. Uh-huh. Right. Which yeah. is something yes. Sarah and I discussed is that it became a, a character flaw and you just were totally. a hateful, horrible person that wanted, yeah. you know, didn't care about anybody yeah. but yourself. That was, to me, just shocking and really sad, yes. a sad time for our country. Yeah. Absolutely. And what you started hearing on the healthcare side of it, right behind the scenes, is doctors would say patients deserve to die if they didn't get the shot. And if you didn't get the shot, you don't deserve an ICU bed and you don't deserve these medications. Mm -hmm. And so there was this really sick and bizarre mental dichotomy of people who were worthy versus people who weren't. So was that was that prior to the knowledge or the awareness that the vaccine neither prevented you from getting it nor spreading it? Or was that despite that fact, because you were potentially taking a bed now uh in the hospitals, right? Because the. My understanding yeah. is, is that now where we stand with this vaccine is that it provides serious hospitalizations, but it does not prevent spread nor transmission. So it does none of the above. Right. So I was seeing vaccine complications. And this is something we don't talk about. I was seeing vaccine complications as early as March 21 mm. in the ICU. Mm-hmm. So there was one point in an ICU I was working at, we had five ECMO patients, four were post-vax. So I was seeing very severe complications very early on. And as we were speaking about it with our colleagues, we were disincentivized to report that to VAERS saying, you can't talk about that. Um, th- that was the rhetoric that was happening. So, and if you remember, this was a quote, a pandemic of the unvaccinated, right? Mm-hmm. So the, the hospital CEOs were lying and saying, everybody here in our ICU is unvaccinated. That was a bold-faced lie, and we have the, I mean, there's data to show that. It was never a pandemic of the unvaccinated. The vaccines actually caused immunosuppression. So if you were got the shot and you were exposed to a COVID patient, you were more likely to pick it up than the two weeks after the shot. Hmm. That is confirmed based on CD8 counts. It did not prevent severe hospitalization. It did not prevent death in anybody. And it actually now, if you look at the data, if you got a shot at nine months, you're I think it's twice as likely to have COVID. And now the more shots you have, the more COVID episodes you have. That is data that's published in in medical, in accepted medical journals. Do you think it's interesting, you know, going back to the verbiage that we hear like, well, you just don't know any better, right? You're uneducated mm-hmm. about the risks or about this or about that. You know, you don't believe in the science, right? Like that's kind of the verbiage that's used a lot. But science should always be you questioning, right? Everything. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, constantly. So Constantly asking questions, constantly poking to see, you know, what else is out there. Have we lost that? Totally. First of all, the science, I would never say the science is settled, but the people who are saying those things don't even understand how the shots work. Mm -hmm. They don't even know the data that the spike protein has been found stained in every organ in the body. The lipid nanoparticles have been stained in every organ in the body. They're completely toxic. They cross the blood brain barrier. You had a pediatrician writing in a divorce case that the the children should be forced to be vaxxed. And the pediatrician didn't even, hadn't even heard of theirs. So the people who are so outspoken of this, actually, they refuse to debate, right? So that's your tell. Because the people who are on my side, my colleagues have said, let's debate. Let's get a round table. Let's get a discussion going. Bring forth your best data and let's let people figure it out. And their side has censored us. They've reported us to the medical boards to try to silence us. And they've wiped us off of social media, off of meta, you know, off of Twitter for a while, because all they had to do was delay us. They knew that the truth would get out. But if they delayed it long enough, people wouldn't hear it until they were already damaged, until they already had the shots in their arms. Well, that that leads Mm -hmm. me to my next question. And I want to I want to talk about because I got the vaccine and Mm -hmm. I want to know now, am I at greater Mm -hmm. risk for adverse 
effects down the road. But before we do that, you guys want to do Boobs in the News? Let's do it. All right. Boobs in the News is a fun segment where we read funny tweets by real people or ridiculous news stories. Boobs in the News. Boobs in the News. Boobs in the News. All right. Are you ready for this boobs? It's usually you reading the boobs, so this feels very, like, backwards. Okay. Yeah, I'm excited. Okay. Usually I know the funny things. I know. Okay, so this one is titled, West Virginia Man Accused of Unlawfully Entering Daycare. Oh. While it was closed to drink the kids' milk and eat their ice cream. Oh. (laughs) Isn't it so sad? I feel like you ought to be invited to snack time. I know. A 31-year-old Clarksburg man unlawfully entered the city daycare on a Sunday when it was closed. So he didn't have any intention of harming children, which is why I was like, okay, this could be a boobs. But he went in and he basically stole all of their ice cream and was found later with it. He was found with the he contraband. Was found with, yeah. He filled garbage bags with all the items and then and then left the building, left the premises. I'm oh. sure he like rushed off to wherever he was going for a huge insulin dump. Maybe maybe he had a big ice cream social. <laughs> maybe you know? he, did, he invited all maybe, his friends. Yeah, maybe maybe that's how he got busted. He went to go have an ice cream social and everybody's like, "Where'd you get this?" It's <laughs> like the maybe, lo- I don't know if West Virginia is like this, but some states I know they don't sell alcohol on certain days, so maybe they don't sell ice cream on Sundays. <laughs> Or maybe it's because he couldn't get alcohol. He decided to go on an ice cream bender. Maybe he did. That does not sound like a man that is well. Yeah. This West Virginia man, he for sure a boob. Did he go to jail? Let's see. Did they just... Oh, yeah. He was incarcerated and sentenced him to three to 15... (gasps) What? Oh, no. That's something totally different. Never mind. Oh, I was going to say... That's a different story. I'm like, he got... No, he didn't get sentenced to 15 years in prison. (laughs) Uh... We're going to say that's an overreach. Yeah. Oh, no. He was... He taught the toss total loss for the victim was ninety five dollars. I'm I'm sure he just oh, had to pay, he had pay to back pay the, the day. Probably now he's but ninety five dollars. I mean, oh no, this was later. I guess he had other things against him. He did ended up getting going to jail for three to fifteen years, but is also because he had heroin. Oh, <laughs> that's okay. I feel like that oh okay. Well, well, well. uh, he's incarcerated and sentenced him to three to fifteen years in prison for delivery of heroin. So there must have been heroin in the story somewhere. From within 1,000 feet of a grade school. So he must have delivered the heroin, then went into the school, got the ice cream, and then and then went and had his ice cream party. Me thinks he's sampling the product. Oh <laughs> <laughs> uh, Yeah, that's a boob. Oh, boy. Yeah. There you go. Bibs in the news. Bibs in the news. Bibs in the news. All right. And we're back. So I got the vaccine. I mm-hmm. talked about it in a previous episode with Sarah. Mm-hmm. I was very ambivalent about it. I didn't necessarily think it was going to do anything for me, but I also at that point wasn't worried about it harming me. And I had mm-hmm. family members that were high risk. And so I went ahead and did it. I will tell you that I have serious concerns now mm-hmm. being a breast cancer survivor and mm-hmm. you know having my immune system wrecked by treatment now mm-hmm. having done this. So what are your yeah. thoughts about, you know, and, and quite frankly, talking to other physicians and then talking to other immunocompromised people who had the vaccine and then developed other adverse health conditions shortly thereafter has me yeah. very concerned. So what are your thoughts about permanent damage or any kind of, you know, what are your thoughts, I guess? So I never like to use the word permanent damage when you're talking about the human body, because I think we have an infinite potential to heal. And I don't ever want to lock somebody's thoughts and subconscious in this is a downward spiral to the end, right? Mm -hmm. That's just me and my psychology of medicine and how I treat patients. So there's a couple categories of people. Number one, there are people that maybe got a shot of mush. If you remember, these had to be temperature controlled to negative 80 degrees Fahrenheit or negative 80 Celsius. And then they were kept out in tents outside in parking lots Mm -hmm. in the hot sun. 
And so potentially there was degradation of the shot before it got in the arm. So if somebody got one and never had a sore arm, never had like fever, chills, got sick afterwards, I would say maybe you got kind of an inactivated version of it. We know that incidence of cancer is explosive after both COVID and after the vaccine. So again, I don't think there's any moral high ground, whether you did or did not get it either way. I think we need to take symptoms seriously. And, you know, if, you, if you're if you concerned about something, you need to get it investigated sooner than later. And we've rung the warning bell on this since day one, because it does, it spike interacts with P53, which is a tumor suppressor gene. And it is younger patients. It is more aggressive cancers. It is a later stage when diagnosed. It's exploding. And that's really where one of the areas our clinic is moving into because the same people who sought us out for COVID care that didn't trust corporate medicine now don't trust corporate medicine for cancer care because these hospitals are building wings because the cancer rates are exploding and they make so dang much money off of them. They're just trying to get patients in the door and milk them for cash. So I... Nurse navigators are our biggest referral partner, and talking to them, they are just telling me that the number of young women mm-hmm. coming through their doors with breast cancer, I mean, we knew that those numbers were already growing, yep. but they have just exploded, and they are yeah. so concerned. It's just, yep. you know, we get more and more calls through our nonprofit about it, and it's just, it's yeah. shocking. Yep. So, and when you look at the traditional model of cancer care, I mean, it's just, the things that people are told just really like light my fire, right? <laughs> Everything you're saying resonates very deeply with the people who have gone through breast cancer treatment, especially the traditional model. Because yeah. when you're traumatized and you are at that heightened fear, you are in that fight and flight response, right? So you're just barely treading water. Your mm-hmm. mental health is just not rock solid at that point. You're scared. You're scared. You're, sc- you're scared. So. You're scared. Yeah. And and I'll be honest with you. I I you know, my faith is very important to me. I prayed about every aspect of the journey because I didn't want to have certain portions of treatment and I felt called to do them. I was told, you know, that's me and my faith with my conversation with God. I felt that I was being told I need to do these things and I did them. Mm -hmm. And that's how I make my medical decisions, you know, to each their own. I think you're tapping into how patients a lot, a lot, not all, but a lot of patients feel. And when the dust settles and they're no longer in that acute trauma phase, Mm -hmm. And they're in that evaluation phase, right? The processing phase. They start to sit there and go, I don't feel like I was treated as a whole person. Right. I have questions about why I was told to do this, this, and this with very little time to process it because I thought my life hung in the balance. And that tends to breed the medical skepticism that we're talking about. And then women are in this very unfortunate position where they don't know who they can trust. And to be fair, Dr. James, there's a lot of people on the functional medicine side who are not great either. And so agree. And and so here you are, right? You've got people who are claiming to practice functional medicine who are not equipped to do so and are potentially putting patients at great risk. And at the same Mm -hmm. time, you have a medical system that is completely systemized, non-personalized, focuses on sick care, motivated on by money. Mm -hmm. And and so what where does that leave women Mm -hmm. wondering what to do for their care? And so I think this episode is going to be controversial. Mm -hmm. And I would suspect that the powers that be will sit there and say this is, you know, damaging and harmful to have this conversation because you're basically promoting, you know, not giving them care. And that's not at all what we're saying. I think it goes back to what you said, which is that you can ignore the elephant in the room. 
But women are beginning to demand that we get treated as a whole person mm-hmm. and that and, and, and unfortunately, the education about the whole body and how it all works together is not learned in medical school. So yeah. it's very reactive. It's very specialized and it's very, you know, kind of scorched earth. And I think that people are getting fed up with that. And I just I, I don't know what the answer is, though, because there's so much on both sides that is a hot mess. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I just want to say, if I'm not involved in a conversation that the corporate establishment thinks is controversial, I'm not doing my job. <laughs> there you go. That's what I'm here to do. Right. I'm here to do that. So, so my background is a, I did. I was a general surgeon. I had a huge breast surgery practice. I don't know if you knew that. I took care of a lot of women with breast cancer as a surgeon, okay. coming at it from that perspective. Sure. So I have been very hesitant to step into the cancer space for exactly what you said. You don't want to do things that are salesy that are opportunistic, that mm-hmm. hurt people, right? You only want to be helpful. Mm-hmm. And I think right now the market is wide open for a doctor who can come from, like not all traditional medicine is bad and not all integrative is bad. And right now you've got one side saying the other is evil and opportunistic and you've got the other side saying the same thing. Mm-hmm. So we need to find somebody who can mesh this together. And that's what I'm trying to do. Mm-hmm. And it t- it's really hard because people go to their oncologist and they get all this statistics, right? 15% of people like you in eight years are going to have 80% recurrence if you do this therapy or this gene test or whatever, right? They have Mm -hmm. a ton of data. And then they come to me because that doesn't feel good to them. And they're like, well, where's your data on vitamin C? Yeah, nobody's going to fund that study because nobody's getting rich giving people vitamin C. Mm -hmm. So there has to be a balance where you say, hey, I think some vitamin C is good here. Maybe you need some radiation. We definitely need to get you ready for surgery, right? And mesh the two together. And like you said, take care of the patient as a whole and have a more balanced approach. And I would say not only are there people in functional medicine who are wholly unqualified. I remember a yoga teacher who said, I teach functional medicine. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, the hell you do. You're not even a doctor. You're not even any kind of licensed medical person. Mm-hmm. So the, the term functional medicine has been, really been commercialized. Well, and, and um, can I interject with that? Because what are your yeah. feelings about a lot of these functional medicine doctors are getting are yeah. profiting off of the supplements that they prescribe? Is that the general yeah. model? It is the general model. So a couple of things with that. First of all, in the fun- functional medicine space, there are also clinics who say for the low price of $48,000, you can come here for four weeks and we'll do your cancer care to somebody who's going to live a long and healthy life, right? So there's a massive opportunistic on the other side of that too. Now, if your wife's in jeopardy and you're going to have three months to live, I get it. But for a stage one breast cancer, that is wholly opportunistic. Mm-hmm. So yes, it is the model to stock supplements. and the re- And I do that. And I defend that because... I can give my patient a list of things to go out and find and they're going to go buy crap off of Amazon Mm -hmm. and they're not going to get the therapeutic benefit. So I spend a lot of time researching products, what to use, how to use them, what dose, what side effects, how to use them together. And so I have that stuff in my office and I try to make it at a decent price point for patients so that they can access it and have the best quality for the best value. Um, I can tell you in the state of Missouri, it is also legal for doctors to dispense prescriptions there are two instances where I can buy a medication for three to five dollars, a hundred pills, a bottle of a hundred. And my patient, I prescribed it to my patient. They went to the pharmacy and it was sold to them for $185. Oh, geez. So you have to keep in mind that, you know, you have to trust who you're dealing with because when I tell people like, hey, this is a $15 bottle of pills, 
you know, they're like, yeah, but are you making money off of it? And it's like, I have to make a few bucks, right? To pay my staff for the time to get it on the shelf, right? This is how business works. Mm -hmm. But I'm not selling to you for $185. I'm trying to help you at the end of the day. Mm -hmm. And so you just have to trust who you're you're dealing with. Mm -hmm. What kind of illness, disease, or dysfunction are you seeing most often that you feel like traditional medicine overlooks or that has really just been apparent to you since kind of traveling this functional medicine road? Because it sounds like you've made a financial investment in some procedures and equipment that other doctors are not likely to be using. So what are you seeing that prompted that that you really want to address? So there's probably two or three main things out there that I think are epidemic and then everything else springs from that, right? One of them is just massive fatigue. Mm -hmm. So whether that is hypothyroidism, if that is toxicity, wherever that roots, fatigue, corporate medicine has no idea what to do with a tired patient. Mm -hmm. They have no idea where to even start because you get a seven to 10 minute appointment and that is like an hour to four hour conversation, you know, to start to dig into why you're tired and you don't have energy. Mm. Metabolic syndrome is huge. People flood their carburetors. We eat way too many carbs and obesity is one of the results of that. And then third is just spike toxicity. So those are kind of the three main areas that we're seeing patients. Interesting. Before we sign off, let's hear from our second sponsor. It's important to have a primary care doctor that you can count on. At BJC Healthcare, world-class and compassionate primary care providers are ready to see you at offices close to home. And you can count on BJC to make it easy with convenient online scheduling, virtual visits, and direct messaging. To find a BJC primary care provider near you and to schedule an appointment online, visit bjc.org forward slash primary care. All right, we are back. Can you tell us just, do you have any, any last words of wisdom for any breast cancer patients listening or really anybody who's listening? Yeah, I would say you need to advocate for yourself. The doctor does not tell you what you do. You are in control and you need to find what feels good to you. If your spidey senses are going off, that you're going down a road you're not comfortable with, you need to hit the brakes and you need to find somebody you trust because that is not going to serve you. So just be your own best advocate and keep looking because you will find somebody who will help you. Awesome. Well, I, for one, appreciate being able to have yes, a robust, thank you so much. like a robust debate. Yeah. Like it's fun to go back and mm-hmm. forth and really dig in. And I think anybody that has a curious mind and is interested in mm-hmm. just constantly evaluating where yep. we are as a society, it's just, that's what we need. Right. So yep. we appreciate, Amen. we appreciate your time. <laughs> thank you so much for being here. Yes. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Okay, guys. Until next time. See ya. Thank you for being a listener of the Besties with Breasties podcast. If this podcast had a positive impact on your journey, leave us a review or consider becoming a supporter. You can donate with the link in the show notes or at faiththroughfire.org. This episode was hosted by Sarah Hall and Beth Wilmus, audio and production edits by Innovative Frequencies. (laughs) 